right, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We're continuing our series, Respectable Sins. Uh, You're wondering what that is. Uh, We've been thinking about sins that don't often come to our minds when we think about sin. We've been considering sins that often fly under the radar and have become acceptable to some degree in the lives of many. And this morning, we come to the sin of pride. Um, Pride is not usually the first sin that we think of when we think about sin, at least not pride in ourselves. Uh, Pride is, is one of those sins that is really easy to spot in others, but not so easy to spot in ourselves. But when we see it in someone else, we recognize it as despicable. When you, see an, when you see a proud person, you're like, that is awful. I don't like that guy. But it, we're not so quick to see it in ourselves. So I put, I put it this way. We hate pride. We just usually don't hate our own pride. Um, now, that, now, pride's a really big subject, and there are, there are many nuances and aspects of pride that, that we could look into. Um, but since it's so big, what I want to do is I want to narrow it down to something that's more manageable for this morning. Um, so here's the kind of pride that I want to talk about. Uh, from our text today, uh, an attitude of self-satisfaction, um, an, el- an elevated self-evaluation that comes from what you are, what you possess, what you have done, or even what you have not done, um, to think highly of yourself because of your gifts, graces, abilities, morality, and success. So I'm going to go ahead and give the sermon away right now at the beginning. Being proud is a sin because the proud person arrogantly thinks and acts as if all that they have, are, have done, or have not done comes from themselves. Pride is a sin because the proud man has forgotten God in his life and therefore, in one way or another, attributes every good thing to himself alone. That's the problem. So brothers and sisters, my goal for this sermon is to see God humble us through his word. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here and you are very proud and you are very good at hiding it. I know I, I, I've had people confess that to me. I had no idea that you, pride was an issue for you. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. So maybe you're very proud and you're very good at hiding it. Uh, maybe you're very proud and you're not good at hiding it. Um, Maybe you're not so proud all the time, but in certain instances, you really begin to puff your chest out or around certain people. Uh, Maybe you are very humble toward your fellow Christians, but very proud in your heart toward the unbeliever. Um, But I I think that all of us could use some humbling in some way or another. And listen, I I don't want to be unfair to you. Maybe you're very humble and, and, and you don't need humbled. And if that's not what you need, then then praise God, this sermon will still be a benefit to you because it will magnify the grace of God towards you and give you much kindling to start a fire of praise to God in your heart. So this morning, I, I want us to consider areas of our lives in which we are tempted to be proud because we have forgotten God. And by God's grace, we will leave here today knowing, owning, and rejoicing in the truth that all we have and all we are, we have received from our gracious God. May God bless the preaching of his word. And with that said, will you 
Please stand with me now if you're able. Please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. 1 Corinthians 4.7 For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, help us this morning to profit from your preached word. Work in our hearts and cause us to see your goodness toward us. Help us to see and know and be convinced that all is of grace and that you, God, have been singularly kind to us. Cause us by your word and spirit to trace all we have back to you, the fountain of all goodness and blessing. Grant that we would leave here saying, our only boast is in the Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now before we dive into the the kinds of things maybe that we're proud about, we, we need to understand the context of this verse, and and look closely at the verse. The apostle says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Uh, First, I I want to humbly take issue with the ESV's rendering of the first question in our text. It says in, in our translation, For who sees anything different in you? Um, And from what I have read, I am not a Greek scholar, uh, but from what I've read, that's a legitimate rendering of the Greek. That is how many translations render it. But there is another way that it can be rendered um, that's not as negative, right? That's negative. Who sees anything different than you? But is more positive, and I personally think makes more sense with the rest of the verse. Uh, The King James Version puts it like this. For who maketh thee to differ from another? For who maketh thee to differ from another? In other words, who makes you different from each other? Who is it that makes one man to be different from another man? Or more literally, it says, for who distinguishes you? That's the most literal way to render it. Who makes one man distinguishable from another man? I'm going to go with the King James on this. Uh, This is how many of our forefathers understood this part of the verse. So I think I'm in safe company with them. Um, Also, uh, as I hope you'll see as I continue, I think it makes good sense with the rest of the verse. Uh, But now to the context. Uh, We're dropping in on the apostle's rebuke of the Corinthian church. Paul's addressing a problem here. Uh, The Corinthian church was super messed up, and he's addressing one of many problems here. Factions had formed among them. Believers were boasting in their abilities and their spiritual gifts in their uh, preferred teachers, right, their groups, their sta- even their status within the church, and, and among other things. They were divided in a horrible way, and in their division, as Paul says in verse 6, they were puffed up against one another. Uh, they, they were thinking and behaving arrogantly toward each other, full of pride. That's their problem. Then the main reason, at least up to this point in the letter, the main reason for their pride seems to be because they each championed their own group within the church under various leaders. And because of I'm part of this group and I'm part of this group, they're very puffed up in pride against one another. But also looking at the rest of the book, it seems that they were also proud for multiple reasons, not just this. Uh, But in this verse, the apostle strikes at the heart of all their pride. 
So just real quick, I want to recognize that Paul is dealing with a specific problem of what people call sectarian pride within the church. But nevertheless, what he says here is a broadly, uh, a broadly uh, applicable truth. Right? It's relevant for all kinds of pride. So though Paul is speaking this into a certain context, it's a general maxim. And it's helpful to, for all kinds of pride. So there's a, there's a holy logic in this verse that when we receive it by faith will destroy pride in our hearts. Um, when we are proud, we are thinking that all we have comes from our own hand, our own hard work, our own natural abilities, our, our wise decision-making, our morality, or, or whatever it may be. We're thinking it comes from us. But the apostle asks, for who makes you to be different from another? Who makes you to be di- Who made you different? Who made you what you are? Who made you distinguishable from other people in what you have, what you can do, or any other such thing? Who is responsible for who and what you are? The answer clearly in any Christian context is God. God makes us to differ from one another. God gives gifts. God gives abilities. God gives success. He is the source and reason for all that we are. Everything can be traced back to his hand in our creation and his hand in, or rather, his hand of providence over our lives. You are not what you are because you are so great. Rather, you are what you are by the grace of God who makes men to differ from one another. What, what are we? We are nothing. Are you in control of your life? You may think that you are because you're a fool. But are you actually in control of your life? Did you determine where you would be born? How you'd be born? What your body would be like? What family that you would have? What privileges that you would be born to? Did, did you determine anything about your life? Did you bless yourself? Is it you who have been taking care of you all your life? Do you determine your strength? Do you determine your intelligence? Do you determine anything? You would be a fool to say yes to any of those questions. You would be an absolute fool. God alone makes men to differ. He alone distinguishes one man from another in gifts and graces and every other thing that makes us different. So then, in light of that, Paul goes on to say, what do you have that you did not receive? And we're all compelled to answer, nothing. I don't have anything that wasn't given to me. I have received everything. All of it comes from the hand of Almighty God, as James reminds us in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. All that you have has been given to you. Allow me to go through some of this for, for a minute. Just bear with me. Are you smart? Some of you are very intelligent. Are you smart? But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Job 32.8. Do you have natural abilities and strength? Like you're able to do things and you're, and you're good at the skills that you have? Psalm 62, 11, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. You're able to do what you do because God loans you power. He gives you power and ability. Are you healthy? John says this, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Third John, verse 2, Prayer is offered for health. Why? Because God gives health. Do you have material wealth? 
The Lord makes poor and makes rich. 1 Samuel 2.7. Do you have a family? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor. That is grace from the Lord. Proverbs 18.22. Do you have children? Genesis 48.9. Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. Do you have power or status? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 2.21. Are you beautiful? Are you handsome? I joke a lot. We have a lot of handsome guys in this church. We have a lot of beautiful women in this church. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139.13. Are you a believer? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Do you have a spiritual gift? And you all do. Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. Romans 12.6. Are you a righteous person? Are you pretty moral? And there's certain things that you don't do. Genesis 20, verse 6. Then God said to him, the king of Egypt, in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. You don't commit certain sins because God restrains you. Brothers and sisters, let me ask again. What do you have that you did not receive? I dare you. Think of something and search the scriptures thoroughly. You'll find out rather quickly you were given it. And that's why Paul goes on to ask a stinging question to anyone who would be proud of what they are and what they have. His final question, if then you received it, why do you boast? As if you did not receive it. What in the world are you bragging about? There's a more modern way of putting it. What are you bragging about? Why are you proud? You simply received a gift. What do you have to puff your chest out about? Where does your sense of superiority come from? You received it from God. You didn't do anything. That's it. You're not that important. Or consider this. If if you received it, God could have given the exact same thing to someone else and not you. But he graciously chose to give you what you have. If all you have, you have received and not earned, you have received and not bought, you have received and not merited, then why are you proud? Brothers and sisters, I think Paul's point is that our gifts are given to glorify the giver, not the recipient. I'm going to steal, I'm going to do my own version of Charles Spurgeon here for a minute. I stole this from his sermon. God is the potter, and we are the clay. Romans 9. God is the potter, we are the clay. Now, what clay vessel can come off the wheel and say, look at how great that I am. I deserve to be this way. I deserve praise for what I am. I did this to myself. I am great. That is ludicrous. If clay could speak... The only thing for it to say would be, look what the potter did. Look how he fashioned me. Look how well he shaped me. Look at how glorious of a use he made me for. The potter is amazing. I am the work of his gracious hands. He has been kind to me, and because of him, I am what I am. That's what the clay would say. Hear me. Your gifts, graces, abilities, success, Knowledge, everything is a gift from God. So then you ought to exalt him and not yourself. That's the point. God has given you all that you have for his glory, 
not yours. To, to dig more from Spurgeon here, furthermore, to, to have received much is simply to have been made a greater debtor to the giver. Who in their right mind boasts about their debt? Who does that? Right? It would be a ridiculous thing to boast about how much you owe another person. I'm $250,000 in debt. I'm better than you. How does that make sense? It doesn't. But all that we are, we owe to God. You cannot boast of your debt. So all we can rightly do is actually boast in him who has indebted us so much to himself by pure and sovereign grace. If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? To constantly ask yourself the three questions of this verse will produce hearts of gratitude and deep humility in every believer if you'll answer them honestly. This text is a pride destroyer. So then, the apostle is clearly forbidding pride in this text, is he not? By forbidding boasting, he is forbidding pride. And I say that because boasting is just an expression of pride. It's a manifestation of a proud heart. And scripture forbids pride in many places. Here Paul does it implicitly, but I want to show you some explicit places. And, and the Bible even says that pride is a reason for God's judgment. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Just real quick, I want to throw this out there. We're a very conservative church. A lot of us are quick to point out passages regarding homosexuality and the like. God says this is an abomination in his sight. He says to wear, for a man to wear a woman's clothing is an abomination in his sight. Yes, amen, praise God. That's what the book says. It also says everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Just throwing that out there. And I'm not being soft on those cultural sins either. It's just we need to look at the text. God hates, hates pride. And then most famously, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Brothers and sisters, God hates all vain boasting, arrogance, and pride. To boast is to magnify yourself. It is to glorify yourself. To give no credit to the Lord for what you have, are, or have accomplished. A proud person boasts. And let's be clear about something. You, you, can, you can be proud, you can boast, and it can be verbal or nonverbal. Right? You, you, you can show your pride openly to others. Right? That's like, like, we don't do that too much, do we? Because we're Christians, right? We're too smart. Right? We're going to hide that. We're going to hide that sin. Like We don't want to like openly boast about what we are and that we're proud of ourselves. But you can do it that way. Or you can more commonly boast of yourself in your heart. You can have a proud heart where, though you're too ashamed to say it out loud because you know it's sinful, you do internally give the glory to yourself. And catch this, in God's grace, a proud heart will inevitably reveal itself. It will. It will come out in how you treat other people. It will come out in how you talk about other people. 
And it will come out in a sense to yourself in, in how you silently think about other people. It will reveal itself. You will have contempt. You will look down on your fellow man, even your fellow Christian, if you have a proud heart. Absolutely you will. And why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't you? They should be just like you. And you did it all by yourself. So why can't they get it together and just be more like you? You see how those things work together? If you are what you are by your own hand, and they're not as good as you, they just need to get it together and be more like you. Let's take take some time then and, and think about some of the graces of God that we sinfully turn to pride. I think that's the best way for us to frame it, by the way. The graces of God toward us that in our wickedness we turn into an occasion to boast of ourselves. First, let's consider our standing in the world. And I'm talking about your material possessions or, or things in that, that ballpark. right? Your money, your success in business or school, if you're in school, or your career, uh, your abilities, right? Your, um, your plans that have come to pass, your status and your influence and your sphere of life, uh, those kinds of things. If you're a minister, your ministry. Often we will look around at our lives and our homes and our money and our success and our standing and develop what I uh, have come to affectionately refer to as Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. You guys remember that in Daniel? Nebuchadnezzar syndrome. This is where you look at everything and say, look at my kingdom that I've built with my own two hands. Right? Look what I did. I've done this. I deserve this. My strength has done it. Right? You worked hard. You planned well. You did what was necessary. You studied. You persevered. You denied yourself. You pushed on. And now you take all the credit for what you've done. You take all the credit for all that you have. And as a result, you begin to look at others who don't have what you have or are not as successful as you, and you begin to think deep down, or maybe openly. I see business owners do this stuff. I know a lot of business owners. If they were as smart as me, or worked as hard as me, or were as wise as me, were as cunning as me, planned like me, set themselves up like I did, and all the rest, they could have what I have. But since they don't, it simply must be because I'm better, smarter, or whatever than they are. And you look down on others while taking all the credit for your success. Now hear me. Let's, let's, I want to be clear here. I am not denying that you worked hard. I, I'm not. You did work hard. You did plan well. You were wise. You, you practiced the virtue of delayed gratification, which is not very popular. You studied hard. You, you, you did all that. Sure, the Bible tells us that we're to do these things and that there is often blessing and reward for them. But I will ask you this. Where did you get the ability to do those things? We forget this. Right? And then when I'm saying this now, you're like, well, of course, like it came from God. Then why don't we recognize that on a regular basis? Where did your wisdom come from? Where did your, and let's keep it real, with most of our success, where did your fortunate circumstance come from? That is a, that is a lot of people's success. Right place, right time, right family, right piece of property, person that just wanted to get rid of something and gave it to you for half of what it's worth. That's a lot of our success. 
Furthermore, where did your natural gifting come from? Where did your work ethic come from? Well, my parents taught me to work hard. Cool. Who determined who your parents would be? And where did your parents learn it? Do you think that's all you? You must, if you're proud. You must think that's all you. You must, because you look down on others who don't have what you have, so you must deep down believe that it really was all you. But what does the apostle say? What do you have that you did not receive? All of your intelligence, your work ethic, your everything came from the Lord. You did not put yourself where you're at. The Lord has blessed the works of your hands. Read in the Bible where that is a constant refrain, by the way. God, please bless the works of our hands. He's blessed you, and he could have just as easily not. In fact, sometimes God chooses to frustrate even the best plans and hardest work of righteous men because it is his holy will to do so. But if he didn't do that to you, then all you have must be of grace. So why do you boast? But let's get to spiritual things now. Some people who have been Christians for a good bit of time can begin to become proud that they are a Christian. Let's, uh, let's be clear. It's good to be proud to be a Christian in the sense that you are unashamed of being one and you won't let anyone make you feel bad about it. That's good, but that's not what I'm talking about. The kind of pride in being a Christian that is sinful is an attitude that looks at the unbeliever with contempt. You think in your heart, you might not say it out loud because your theology is too good, but it's somewhere in your heart. They are too stupid to believe the gospel, and that's why they won't come. Anyone who's done very much evangelism also knows exactly what this feels like. They're just too stupid. That's why they won't listen. And you puff out your chest in pride because you do believe, though. And so that must be because you are so smart. If they don't believe because they're so stupid, you must believe because you are so intelligent. And so the reason, again, why the unbeliever refuses Christ must be because they're dumber than you. And they're too stupid to see a good offer when it's put right in front of them. Right? Because they don't see what you saw. And you think that you saw it because you were wise enough to see your need for Christ all by yourself. And you were smart enough to choose Christ to save you. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to keep it real. I chose this sin to preach on because I see this in some of us. I see it in myself sometimes. By the way, it's really ironic that we're Calvinists. And this is in our hearts. But again, many of us, at least from time to time, look at the unbeliever with contempt. And then we look at ourselves as Christians with a hint of pride. Oh, we might declare with our lips that we're saved by sovereign grace. We might declare doctrinally that we are only saved by God's predestinating grace and doing all things for us. But then we betray what is in our hearts by how we think about and talk about unbelievers. Now listen, those who refuse to come to Christ are fools of the highest order. That's a fact. That's biblical. They are fools. But you were once a fool. You weren't born a Christian. What, what, what roused you from your foolish rebellion against Christ but God's grace toward you? 
It's because of God that you saw your sin. It's because he gave you a sight of your sin and his wrath and the cross of Christ that you became a Christian. Yes, you chose Christ. And it was the wisest decision you ever made in your life. But why did you choose what you chose? Why did you choose Christ? John Piper has an excellent illustration of this. He said, I can sit you in front of a painting and say, look at this painting. I can explain to you the artist, when he did it, the techniques that he used, the color scheme of the painting, and show you it all. And then ask you a question. Is it beautiful? I think it's beautiful. I can't control whether or not that you think that it's beautiful. So then here's the question. Why do I think that the painting that is Christ and his gospel, why do I think that that's beautiful and someone else doesn't? Why? Why did you choose Christ while others don't? I'll tell you why. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's why you think the painting's beautiful. That's why you chose Christ. You're a Christian because God chose you to be one. You're a Christian because God sent his son to live, die, and be raised for you for the forgiveness of your sins. You're a Christian because God the Holy Spirit regenerated your dead heart and gave you the gift of faith and united you to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a Christian because you trust in Christ. Amen. But the reason you trust in Christ and others don't is because God had mercy on you and has graciously given you eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart that desires Christ, a will to choose him and faith to receive him. And that's not your doing. That's not your wisdom. That's the grace of God. What do you have that you did not receive? Another thing that Christians are often proud of is their soundness of doctrine. This is a, this is a reform specific soundness of doctrine, right? You've come to understand that much of what you were taught was unbiblical and that most of modern evangelicalism is trash. And now you have a pretty solid understanding of many biblical doctrines. To keep it real, probably less than you think that you do, but it's better than it used to be. By the way, I'm speaking to myself too. I'm not trying to put anyone down. And then what do you do with that? You, be, you begin to have a big head. And you think that you, that you know what you know because you're smart enough to see it. right? And the reason why you're parents and your grandparents and your old pastors and your family members and your friends don't believe what you do now is because they're just too stupid to understand the Bible. I, I, by the way, I hear this sometimes, uh, even out of my own mouth. Just read the Bible. Like they don't. Like as if they don't. Right? If they would just read the Bible, they would see what you see, right? If they would just apply themselves, they would arrive at the same conclusions that you do. If they would just do what you did, everything would be fine. But because they don't, you look down on them. And maybe from time to time, as I used to in my early days of Reformed theology, maybe you even question if they're saved or not. And you have no respect for what they do understand. 
and you're contentious with them at every point, always pointing out the flaws in their doctrine, and never rejoicing with them in what you do share in common in Christ. Do you see the pride there? You think that you understand the Bible because you're smarter than them, or because they're lazy and simply won't study whether or not that is true. I hear that a lot. Well, they must be too lazy to study the Bible. And it's like, no, this Arminian cat actually does study the Bible. He's just not seeing what we're seeing here. But listen, that's not why you understand things and they don't. That's not what's gotten you as far as you have gotten in your theological studies. God has shown you things in his word at a faster and greater rate than he has shown them. God has given you a good mind to think systematically through the Bible well, hold on, if this text is saying what you're saying, then what about this text? And he's not thinking about that other text over there, but you've learned to harmonize portions of Scripture because God gave you a good mind to think in this way. Right? God has enlightened your mind to understand things more clearly than others. That's the only reason that you've progressed as far as you have in your study of the Bible. God has been kind to you in a great way. But it's not owing to your goodness or smarts. I'll tell you this, and this may be a hard pill for some Reformed people to swallow, but here we go. Smarter men than you are not reformed. For real. I'm, dude, they're wrong. Like, I have no problem saying, like, yeah, like, he's smarter than me. Dude's wrong. But know this. The, I'm looking at Nick. I see this. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga, brilliant. Not a Calvinist. Could probably argue every one of us under the table. But what, what's our defense? We just keep pointing at the book and say, but that's not what the Bible says. But how does that logically, look, man, maybe I can't figure out the logic of that, but that's not what the text says. But he's smarter than all of us in this room. It's not because you're smarter that you understand these things. It's not a matter of intelligence. I'll tell you what it is. It's a matter of God opening your eyes to behold wonderful things in his word and giving you grace to submit to what you've seen. Because that's what it's actually about, by the way. Understanding the Bible is about submitting to what you've read. What do you have that you did not receive? I'll tell you another thing that I see in, in some of us, including myself, uh, that, we, that we trend toward at certain times. Um, it's what I call moral pride. Pride that we do not commit certain sins. Um, if you're a Christian, you are living a righteous life at least compared to who you used to be. If you're not, you have no right to call yourself a Christian. If you're a Christian, you are putting your sin to death, one sin at a time, by God's grace. You're striving for righteousness. You're growing. You really are becoming more and more practically righteous in your life. You're not justified by that. You're justified only by faith in Christ and his righteousness given to you, for sure. But practically in your life, you are becoming more and more righteous. You're not sinless, and you never will be until you die and are glorified, but you really are growing in righteousness as God would have you to do. And because of this, there are tons of things that you don't do. Right? There are many sins that you don't commit, especially like the, the flagrant and more grievous sins. Right? They disgust you. You cringe at the thought of committing them, as you should. That's right. That's good. So there is a growing list of sins that you don't commit as you grow more and more in righteousness. There's a growing list of sins that you don't desire anymore and have come to a point maybe that you don't see how anyone even thinks them pleasurable or, or, a, good or, or a good idea to do. 
Because you're growing. You're beginning to, sin, to see sin more rightly. But this can easily turn to pride. Right? Where, where you begin to look at the sins of our culture and those who gladly commit them and you turn up your nose to them in self-righteousness. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Thank you that I am not like other men. You look at those who practice sodomy, those who murder their infant children, those who abuse drugs and alcohol, those who mutilate their bodies, those who encourage children to do the same, those who love fornication, those who love perversity, and others who commit heinous sins, and you begin to puff your chest out in pride. You think to yourself, or maybe you even say to your brothers and sisters in the church, I would never do that. Never. Or, I can't believe that anyone could ever find that desirable. Or, or this, this one's been me. Even in my unbelieving days, I would not have crossed that line. Or, you know, those people are flatly disgusting, and I will have nothing whatsoever to do with them. I would look the other way if I saw that person coming toward me. And, and in all of this, it is evident that you feel a sense of superiority against those people because you're holding them in contempt. And in doing so, you elevate yourself in your own mind. I'm stealing this bit from Jerry Bridges. When you talk about the sins of others, you feel a sense of exhilaration. Isn't there, like a, isn't there like a weird, it's fun to sit around and talk about our cultural sins and how bad they are? Yeah, that's pride. Why? Because I don't do that stuff. And they do. So what does that mean? I'm better than they are. And listen, you are practically more righteous than them. But you're not as righteous as you think that you are. I'll throw that in there. In looking at the sins of others, you are really convinced that you have not or would not commit those sins because you're just too moral and righteous to do those things. Like, why wouldn't you do that? Because I just wouldn't. You think that you don't commit the grievous sins that others do because those sins are just beyond you. They're just further than you would ever go. Those sins are, are, could never be appealing to you because you're just too inherently righteous to ever find them desirable. But is that the case? Is it, because that, is it because of you that you haven't committed those sins? Is it because you're too good that you've never done those things? Or is it because God restrained you in your unregenerate state and kept you from them? God forbid that we ever forget who we, who we were. Do you know even now as a Christian, God's hand of mercy restrains your remaining corruption? so that you don't fall into heinous sin? And if God takes away his restraining mercy from you for one second, who knows what you'll do? Even a regenerate person. You say, what do you mean? Can a regenerate person do, with her, do something that bad? David killed Uriah and slept with his wife. Yes, if God takes his hand of restraining mercy away from you, there's no telling what you might do. You could have been one of them had God not been merciful. 
He could have handed you over to every sin known to man and let you go completely your own way as he has done with some of them. It is by his grace that you have not fallen as far as you could have, even when you were an unbeliever. I'll let Charles Spurgeon take it from here. This is a lengthy quote, but it's good. Grace hath done it and nothing else. When we pass a prostitute in the street, we say, Oh, poor creature, I can pity you. I have not a harsh word for you, for I had been as you are, had God not preserved me. And when you see the reeling drunkard, be not too hasty to condemn. Recollect that you had been as a beast before God, unless the Lord had kept you. And when you hear the oath and shudder at it, that's someone blaspheming, imagine not that you are superior in yourself to the man who curses God, for perhaps you once cursed him too. And certainly you would have done it had not the Holy Spirit sanctified you and implanted in you a hatred of that which the wicked so greedily follow. Say, oh, but I should have gone as low as that. I should have been as black as he, unless restraining grace had kept me back in my unregeneracy, and unless constraining grace had pushed me forward in the heavenly race ever since I have known the will of Jesus. Amen. He goes on to say something to this effect. Pride, get away from me. Pride, get away from me. You can't live with me. Pride can live only with the man who has always been good and has no need for grace. And so it can't live with me because I'm a sinner that God has shown mercy and made holy and is currently still making holy. Brothers and sisters, what do you have that you did not receive? Do you see then the sinfulness of pride? What is it? At root, it is to forget the Lord. You've taken him in your pride completely. You've taken him completely out of the picture. And in your proud boasting, you have begun to believe that everything is by your own goodness and your own merit. You have negated the grace of God and made it nothing. And consider that for a moment, by the way. You, a sinner, are claiming in your heart by, and by your contempt for others that you have earned something. Imagine that. A, a sinner who earns something other than eternal damnation. What nonsense. Let the unbeliever think that kind of stupid stuff, but those who know that they are sinners must reject such thinking as utter foolishness. We know better. We know better. So then what, what else does that tell us then? To be proud is to lie. You're lying to yourself. To be proud is to be a liar. You are the blessed one. You are the debtor to God. You are the blessed, not the benefactor. But in your pride, you believe that you've blessed yourself. You, you lie to yourself. And you've begun to believe your own lies. You are at once the deceived and the deceiver when you're full of pride. To go further, to be proud is to be an unthankful person. For if all things are by your own strength and wisdom and goodness, to whom do you have to be thankful? Yourself. You will thank yourself. You will believe that you are to be praised for all things. To you be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this leads us to the, the worst conclusion. To be proud then is to be a glory thief. It's a glory thief. 
By taking God and His grace towards you out of the equation, you have left only yourself as the root of all your good. So you are thankful to yourself. You praise yourself. You adore yourself and your skills and your goodness. Brothers and sisters, pride is self-idolatry. You are worshiping yourself, glorying in yourself instead of the God to whom you owe all things. It is no wonder then that God says that the proud are an abomination to him. It is no wonder then that God says in Isaiah 2.12, I think it is, that he has appointed a day for the proud where they will be judged for their arrogance. To be proud is to make yourself your own God for you recognize no other beside you. My dear friend, wherever there is pride in your life, you must repent. You must repent or you will suffer the consequences of your pride. God promises in multiple places in Scripture. It's, it's repeated often. God humbles the proud. Now, listen, I don't know how he'll do it in your life. Do, do you boast in what you have? Maybe he'll take it. Do you boast in your heart uh, against single people that don't have a family? Maybe he'll take one of your children. I'm not just trying to scare you. I'm saying, like, God will humble you. Are you, are, you, are, you, are you proud of your beauty? Maybe you'll have a disfiguring car accident. I don't know what it would be. But I do know that the Lord humbles people who are proud. He has done it to countless of his people, and it is painful. I'll speak to ministers for a sec. I'll preach to myself and Dave and Steve. Are you proud of your abilities in the ministry? Maybe the Lord will rob you of them for a season and make you look like a fool. He will humble his people, so fear his discipline and repent. Fear the rod of correction and repent. Return to the Lord and own his grace in your entire life. Repent, and as always, look to Christ who is your righteousness and your substitute, who has taken away your sins. As I've said throughout this series, there is forgiveness for us, for Christ has suffered for our sins in our place There is always forgiveness for those who look to Jesus for mercy. But you must repent. God will receive you again and give you communion with himself. He will cleanse you. He will restore you. He will make you glad. But you must repent. Know this. He loves you too much to let you stay proud. So fear his discipline and repent. And let me warn you, even more sternly, pride is... In in my opinion, pride is just a hair's breadth away from formal legalism. Hear me out. To boast that you're a Christian, to boast in your morality, to boast in your knowledge, is just a step away from beginning to forsake Christ and cling to your own works and wisdom. And those who forsake Christ for their own merits those who believe that they have something to offer God or they have what they have because they are so good, they will perish. Beware of pride, lest you forsake Christ, fall away, and be damned. The elect of God will hear and heed this warning and so be preserved. So hear it and heed it. So then what is the remedy for pride? The remedy for pride is to boast in the Lord. There's your remedy. And earlier in this letter, the apostle tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.31, he's quoting from Jeremiah 9, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Give him the praise. Trace his hand through all your blessings. Look into all that you have and are and look to the scriptures to see that all is from him. Remember his sovereignty. Remember that nobody gets anything without his decree. Remember your unworthiness, that you deserve damnation for your sin. And so all that you have and are must be owing to God's good grace. And so thinking on these things, boast in him. Brothers and sisters, you're going to boast in something. You will. It's, it's inevitable. You're, what do I mean? You're going to worship something. You're going to give credit to someone for what you have. That's what you're designed to do. You are going to praise someone for what you have in your life. So instead of looking to yourself, let's be biblical and honest and pious and look up to heaven and say, this is all of God's doing, all by his grace. Say with the apostle in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Turn every temptation, think about this, turn every temptation to praise yourself into an occasion to praise the living God for his grace towards you. When you're scrolling through social media and you see, well, the trans activists are at it again. God, you have been merciful to keep me. Oh, you can be upset at what's going on, but turn that occasion to be proud into an occasion for thanksgiving. Apply that however you need to. But every time that you look at anything in your life that tempts you to be proud, ask yourself, what do you have that you did not receive? Ask yourself that question. So brothers and sisters, boast in the Lord. We are his workmanship. All that we have, we have received. You know, we have a phrase in Reformed uh, Christendom that we like to say a lot. Some of you can already probably see where I'm heading. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. In the Protestant religion, that is one of the core doctrines of our faith. God alone deserves all glory. So let's live like it. Enough of self-glorying. Give glory to God alone. And may he help us to kill our pride by his word and spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and that you have humbled us today. I pray that you have humbled us today and that if we've not been humbled now, that, that you, your word would find its place in our heart and that by your spirit you would bring about the conviction of sin that we might see. Maybe I, maybe I, didn't, I didn't nail today the, the ways that some of us are, are being proud, but God, you can reveal that to us by bringing this text to our remembrance. So God, work in us and sanctify us for the glory of your name. That we might say with Paul, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Have mercy on us and teach us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able?